Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. It's Tuesday, not Monday, but couldn't get the show done uh, yesterday, and this is a major. There's no skipping Monday match analysis. Actually, in the past, for the first Monday of a major, I actually have skipped the show, but I've said before there's no show. Um, In this case, I've decided, and we'll make this a tradition, the Monday... Um, of a major or the show of a, in the beginning of a major will always be a comment response uh, Q&A type deal because I always have my preview videos and uh, I get great comments on those. So um, that th- this will be, will be the routine moving forward. So that's what I have in store. But first, um, I do want to talk about something uh, that means a lot to me and, and that is what we witnessed last night. Uh, with David Ferrer's last match in a major. Uh, He will retire next year, uh, probably after playing, like, I forget. He he said uh, there's a few tournaments in Spain that he wants to play before he retires, Uh, but but this is uh, pretty much it for David Ferrer. And for me, uh, this felt like Ferrer's retirement because I've watched him so much at the U.S. Open. In fact, for a few years, when, when I was ball boying there, um, if I could help it, I wouldn't miss a single David Ferrer match. I would be there uh, for each and every one. So to see Ferrer walk off the court at the U.S. Open for the last time, um, it really hit me what, what he's meant to me. Um, and I think that anything that the sport of tennis gives me, in a lot of ways, I owe to David Ferrer because he's the person who inspired me and I looked up to and everything I did on the tennis court um, and the reason why I believed in myself was because of him. So I did everything in my power to be as much like him as possible. And a lot of that was in the mind and in the work ethic and and like I said, in my, in my, uh, my belief in myself sort of came from him. Um, because, and first I'll give you kind of the reason, um, and then I'll, I'll show you a a video of what my forehand looks like. So you guys can see how similar it is, uh, to the way David hits it, uh, technically. 
Um, Ferrer was the ultimate talent maximizer. Physically, he is undersized at about five foot nine, and he's a really good athlete, uh, but still uh, undersized nonetheless. And when you look at the undersized player on t- players on tour, uh, usually they have impeccable racket skills. A guy like Fabio Fanini, who's about five foot ten, was blessed with like Roger Federer esque racket skills. Ferrer got neither of those, and the 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 biggest attributes that helped him in his game were uh, number one his ability to give everything he has on every single point, um, and it's something that I've talked about uh, Rafa Nadal doing, and I, I can't stress this enough. It is so hard to play that way, and it's so hard to play against an opponent who's able to achieve that. Um, you know, Ferrer, besides his habit of smoking cigarettes. He maximized his fitness, and the way he was, um, the way he allowed himself to suffer on the court was so essential because there were no easy ways out. He didn't have a big serve. He was aggressive with his forehand, but it wasn't such a big weapon that he could end points in a way where he wasn't able to build up to it. So he had to play long, grueling rallies over and over and over again. And to do that, you have to, A, have the physical fitness. Two, you have to develop your your shot tolerance in terms of, you know, just your consistency. And then three, most importantly, you need to have the ability to suffer on the court. So I worked on all those things and... To me, when I saw myself maximizing my potential, um, what I saw uh, or what I thought I could do was I thought that I could emulate what David Ferrer does. So um, here is a video of uh, my forehand. And at some point, I'll show you guys more footage of, um, I guess, my game. But as you can see, the take back, and this this looks a little bit laggy on my screen. I don't know if it's laggy for you guys, but my take back, I didn't, I never brought it up high. I never brought it behind my head, right? I kept it here and then straight down to here. And then I tried to get as much as I could with the hip rotation. Watch my, watch my front legs, watch them switch. So when I start, I'll hit an open stance and I got to shuffle back here because the ball, if I didn't shuffle back, I would have had it too high. So I shuffle back if you watch my feet. So for this one, watch my feet, shuffle back a little bit. And then if you watch, if you watch my hips combined with my feet, you'll see my left leg uh, starts out in front, but then my hip rotation will bring my right leg in front. You see that? So those are all things that I got um, from Ferrer. My grip is the same as Ferrer. My backhand looks a little different. My serve looks a little different. But the forehand is some is a shot that uh, I really tried to emulate him. So um, all I kind of want to say, and David won't watch this, but you know, thank you, David, uh, for for everything you've done, and I hope that you guys were able to appreciate his career um, as much as I did. Okay, let's get to the comments. I'm ready. Very sad. But uh, also, the way he ended, I'll touch real quick on the Nadal match first. Uh, you know, in a way, it's a terrible way to go out. But also, I think what it shows to me is that, you know, he 
he killed himself out there. And that's what he did. Ferrer played um, until he could no longer play. He emptied the tank, gave everything he had. And by the end, he was up a break on Rafa Nadal, albeit down in the match. Uh, but he could not continue because when, when, when you play that physical brand of tennis, uh, eventually your body will, um, will have all that, that it could take. So, in a way, uh, a tough way to end, but also in a way, a fitting way to end. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll bring what Ferrer gave to me. I'll have that forever. So, that's kind of the influence that, that a player can have. And if anyone has a story similar to mine, where kind of, you know, a player you try to emulate and, you know, once you're emulating a player, that player is a part of you. I'll play tennis my, my whole life. Ferrer will always be a part of me. Uh, that's kind of how I feel. Um, so that's that. Um, if you have anything similar, share that in the comment section because um, I'd be interested in that. Uh, kind of what players do people uh, kind of take from. All right, first comment now. Hi, Gil. I want your opinion about this study of a professor of the Hope University of Liverpool regarding draw fixing in men's tennis. She studied all the major draws from 2008 to 2011, and he, okay, is it she or he, whatever, that's besides the point, and he found out that 12 consecutive times on fast surfaces, Djokovic had been drawn in Federer's half. Amazing and impressing, impressive, but above all, impossible from a statistical perspective. So impossible wouldn't be accurate. Um minuscule odds, and I did read the article, the article was linked at the bottom of that comment, uh, the odds are are really like, like 0. 0.000 something, you know, so a, a really crazy number. I don't really want to say anything on this, because I don't know, and while the numbers can be damning, there's just not enough, I almost feel like you couldn't get away with that. So for for example, the U.S. Open um, has in the past done their draw ceremony in front of everyone, in front of the media. Um, and I, uh, you know, I think that's how most tournaments do it. So how is the draw fixed when they're literally showing us how they do it? Uh, there are ways. There are ways to get around everything. I mean, the Russians... Um, switched out doping samples in the Olympics. I mean, you know, intricate plans can be made. Uh, but this study involved all of the majors. So are all of the majors, all four, fixing draws. There was a separate study that um, Outside the Lines did, an ESPN program hosted by Bob Lee, um, that only looked at the U.S. Open and found similar results. What I would like to know is, is it, an inevitability that if you look at um, certain factors in a string of tennis tournaments, will you always be able to find a coincidence that has extremely low probability? So in this case, it's Federer and Djokovic, which are very you know prominent names. But I wonder, maybe it's always the case that you can find something uh, of that probability. Of that low, low of a probability. I said I didn't want to really go into it, and I did. So the point is, I don't know. It's strange. I don't know what to think. Here's what I do think. 
Here's what I can be, here's what I can say with conviction. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The whole randomization of the draw should cease to exist. When you really think about it, it doesn't make any sense. And in almost all sports, this doesn't exist. In the playoff systems in American sports, the one seed plays the eight seed, the two seed plays the seven seed, the three seed plays the six seed, the four seed plays the five seed. There is no randomization there. You could do the same thing for the top 16 seeds. Remember, the, the seeds are going from 32 to 16, so it will be 16. So the one would draw, well, I don't know if I would, I would do this wrong, but the one would always have the eight in the quarterfinals. Or I don't know if the one, yeah, the one would have the 16, then the eight, and then the four, which would make it pretty important to get the one seed. The two would get the 17, the seven, and the three. Now, even if I'm, even if I'm jumbling up the, uh, the way a, a bracket works, maybe it would have to work slightly different. But in essence, what I'm saying is you could create a system in which it is not random what seeds you draw. There is no reason for it to be random. And then, yes, um, you could get unlucky in terms of getting, let's say, you're the one seed, and in the first round, you have to play an unseeded player that's ranked 30 in the world. That can happen. That is possible. So that is the part that's random. But in terms of Djokovic, the six seed playing Federer, the two seed in the quarterfinals, that doesn't need to be random. The two seed should play the seven. Wouldn't that make sense? And I'm not just saying that because, I don't know, I want Federer to, to, to get an easy draw. I will, I will say that for any time. That's how it should be. What do you guys think of that? Katrina Luna Di Camella, or Di Camea, it's probably Di Camea. Uh, here's an interesting fact for analysis. Neither of them, okay, speaking of the, she, um, he, she I believe, is talking about uh, Nadal and Djokovic. Um, neither of them has won more than three straight matches against each other before um, the other win the next. This excluded four matches in the beginning when young Novak just started. So if that was an indication of the rivalry, then as Nole's fan, would we still want these two facing each other in the U.S. Open? So this is, uh, this is a great stat. Very interesting. I didn't fact check it, but I'm assuming it's correct uh, that they have never, Novak has never beaten Rafa three times in a row, and Rafa has never beaten Novak three times in a row. Um, that's a testament to how, um, how close these guys play each other and how great these two players are. Uh, but would I take it into account um, when it comes to Djokovic? playing Nadal in a potential U.S. Open final, I wouldn't. I would tend to ignore that kind of thing. 
and, and write it off as coincidence. Yeah, that's all I'll say on that. I don't have anything else for that. But an interesting stat, which is pretty much why, why I included it in there, because uh, it is very interesting. Zest for life. Uh, great analysis. I agree with the projected quarterfinal and semifinal winners. In the final, I give Rafa a slight edge. Even at his best, Nole has not had an easy time at the U.S. Open. On the other hand, the U.S. Open is Rafa's second most successful slam, 51-49 uh, to Rafa. So I think 51-49 is the percentage, um, just to make that clear. Okay, so let's talk about this. Rafa has had more success in the U.S. Open than Novak. What I'll say to that is Novak has lost in a lot of finals. And once again, um, and I hate to do this twice in a row, but if you have a guy who's losing in a lot of finals, that is likely, once again, coincidence. A player losing in you know a disproportionate number of finals on a surface that suits them um, unless it's like Federer losing to Rafa in the French Open final year after year after year from, I don't know, 2004 to 2008. That, obviously, no coincidence, there was a better player. But in Novak's case, losing twice to Rafa, who he beats on hard court a lot. Um, you know, obviously, he wins some, he loses some. Um, losing to Stan. And... I believe also losing to Roger in a final. To me, that's just Novak happens to have a bad record in U.S. Open finals. Uh, people love to read into stats like this, but really, when it goes the other way, I'll say the same thing. Why has Novak won so many Australian Opens? Coincidence. He's great at the Australian Open, just as just like he's great at the U.S. Open, but he's just won more finals. If you're going to be in the final consistently, consistently, um, you, you have a chance. And that's it. You might win the final. You might lose the final. We are talking about small sample sizes here. Five to eight matches, that's a small sample size against great players. A few more points. I'd have Kyrgios as the dark horse in the fourth quarter. Easily. I would love to see a Kyrgios-Djokovic quarterfinal. Hatchinov has never, never won a set versus Rafa. No reason to believe he has more of a chance to upset Rafa than Kyrgios versus Federer. So I don't think that. I, I think that Kyrgios has a way better chance to beat Federer than Hatchinov has against Rafa. A lot of people are disagreeing with me that Hatchinov is dangerous. I stand by what I said. Hopefully, Hatchinov doesn't um, blow it in his next uh, match. The same could be said for Rafa. Um, and they get to play. I think it'll be a close match, and I think Rafa needs to play well. Um, I'm not going to go lament uh, the reasons again, because I've already done that twice. Um, and we're going to talk about Kyrgios' chances to upset Federer a little bit later, because there's a comment that touches upon that. If Vavrinka is your dark horse in the second quarter then I think it necessarily follows that Dimitrov, seated higher than Isner, should be given precedence for an upset alert. Uh, that match has already happened. Vavrinka did indeed win. There's a specific reason I didn't have Dimitrov as the upset alert because I knew that in reality, Stan is the favorite. And Stan indeed was the betting favorite in that match. So I didn't want to say, this guy's on upset alert. Meanwhile, they're the underdog. Um, so I have John Isner in that quarter due to his fatigue problems over the summer. I have Isner in that quarter as the upset alert.
So I hope I clear, cleared that up. Grafton Reed says, what you guys are missing in the Joker-Fed Cincy match is that the score should have been 6-2, 6-2. Roger still only lost each set by a single break and played awful. What does that say about Joker's game? A few things to unpack here. First of all, you're putting too much into the score. To me, it wasn't a close match. It was 6-4, 6-4. 6 sometimes can be a very close match. It could be two tight sets. Um, if Roger Federer had um, break points, for example, a lot of break points, if, if, it was, if it felt more back and forth, if the breaks came later in the set, if Roger had more opportunities, then I could say it was a tight match. But it was a 6-4, 6-4 where Roger never felt in it. So I don't think it was a close match. So you're saying, oh, it should have been 6-2, shouldn't have been close the way, the way Roger was playing. I don't agree with that. I, I don't think it was close. I thought that Novak beat him pretty handily. And then the second point is Roger played awful. He didn't play well, but there is there is a there is a, a tendency, way too prominent of a tendency, for people to say so and so played awful. Normally they support that player. So when the player loses, they want to say instead of you know, instead of kind of giving the opponent credit, they like to say he played awful. Um Federer, uh, awful is is too strong. He didn't play well. Um, but like Djokovic against Taro Daniel at Indian Wells, that's awful. You know what I mean? Um, so that's the difference there. Okay, let's go to the next one now. All right. Marcos Ferran Nagato, um, I still think Chilich, if not upset early, has an edge over Zverev, but we'll see. And Delpo's quadrant is the most unpredictable to me, especially depending on his resistance slash fitness. Chilich versus Zverev. I have a hunch Chilich, once again, I, I have a feeling um, he's one of the, this is one of the upsets I'm picking. I'm thinking maybe he doesn't uh, make it to the quarterfinal to play Sasha Zverev. Um, I think that TFO might beat him. I actually thought that Chopo might beat him, and Chopo was up 5-1 in the first set. Now, Chopo was a long shot, so I, I you know, it, this was just kind of a, a flyer pick. But um, Chopo was up 5-1 and started really, really struggling with the heat and, and couldn't even finish the match. So, um, but in terms of Zverev and Chilich as a matchup, I would agree with you that I think that Zverev could get too passive against a guy like Marin Chilich, and Chilich could take it to him. And that wouldn't be good. Because against Chilich, um, if you're an elite defender, you can force Chilich into errors. Sasha Zverev is not. The other option is, um, you know, if you. If you can put Chilich on the defensive, he's not strong defensively at all. Now, it's difficult to do, but when Rafa Nadal or uh, Federer or Djokovic play Chilich, that's what you'll see. You'll see Chilich being put on the defensive. So Sasha would need to do that. And I agree with you. It's not a great matchup for Sasha because if you, uh, in, in a neutral baseline rally, if you're passive against Chilich, Chilich will take the lead in a rally. Think about a fight. Chilich will swing first, and if he doesn't error, that's a big that's a big edge to Chilich. I agree with you about Delpo's quadrant. 
I think that Delpo's quadrant is the most unpredictable. Now, um, he's looking pretty fit. He destroyed Donald Young, which is no surprise because Donald Young is not playing at a high level at all. Um, I, I even watched him in, in qualies and in, in his first round of qualies, and uh, he's just not playing at a very high level. Um, so that's no surprise. But in practice, I'm pleasantly surprised with how he's hitting over his two-handed backhand. And if you look up the, the, the YouTube channel after you watch this video, Love Tennis, you can see they've posted a video of Del Potro practicing with Sasha's, uh, Sasha Zverev, and I do like the way that Del Potro is hitting over his backhand. So that's really good. But at the same time, I think uh, Stan has a shot at coming out of that quadrant. In fact, I think that if Stan, Stan makes it to Del Potro, he's got a really good chance. And then, of course, if John Isner has enough wind in his sails, you know, I loved 2018 John Isner. How he was playing in Miami, how he was playing at Wimbledon. I loved that guy. So if he's not tired, I think that he can make a U.S. Open semifinal. I'm just concerned that he doesn't have enough gas. And that is what, that's what's so un unfortunate about the lack of that fifth set tiebreak. Next one. Jeffrey Kaufman says, if Nadal and Djokovic do meet uh, in the finals, one important factor that could help one or the other is how many hours on the court they have spent their first six matches. If Nadal played only two five-setters and Djokovic played four five-setters or vice versa, that could be the difference between winning and losing. I got to resist on this one. I don't know if that's true because if you saw how Novak got through Wimbledon, if you saw how Novak got through um, Cincinnati, you would know that Djokovic is having a lot of trouble right now winning easily and keeping his top form against weaker opponents. The thing is, it hasn't mattered when he plays top-of-the-line opponents. He's just stepped up his game. His, you know, whether that be his matches early in the year on clay against Kane Ishikori, the final in Queens against Chilich, the, I mean, I won't go down the list. The point is, um, Djokovic has played his best tennis when it matters, and I don't know why that wouldn't continue. And then for Rafa, once again, he's so fit that unless, you know, un unless he starts um, dealing with pain later in the tournament, which is always a possibility for, for, for Rafa, and he, it's been so good this year, luckily, since he missed time at the beginning of the year, unless he starts to develop some, some aches and pains, um, in terms of fatigue, Rafa will probably be fine. So this is something that could be an edge, but probably not. If they met in the finals, um, I probably wouldn't read too much into this. And then last comment before I go, who do you pick in the possible Federer-Kyrgios match? Also from Jeffrey Kaufman. A close match is what I pick. And once again, Kyrgios has to get there. He just beat uh, Radu Albit. Uh... Kyrgios, all summer, I didn't like his summer because, there. first of all, there were retirements, and Kyrgios is like a guy who consistently has retirements, which is, a, it's a terrible thing, really. Um, doesn't, uh, not, doesn't mean you're a terrible person, but, you know, if you want to consistently compete on the tour, to have to retire frequently is a terrible thing. And then when he wasn't retiring... I still didn't see him focus throughout a match. 
He can't focus throughout an entire match. So even against a guy like Del Potro, who he played in Cincinnati, he locked in for two sets. He focused for two sets. And everyone was saying, and he won one of the sets, and everyone was saying, okay, here we go, Kyrgios, once again, he's playing a great opponent. He focuses and he competes. Yeah, but he still couldn't focus in the third set. So I don't like that. Now, Arthur Ashe Stadium against Roger Federer, it's the kind of match that Kyrgios gets up for. And I got to tell you, he's crushing his first and second serves, absolutely destroying them. He's hitting them 140. His motion is so fluid. It's unbelievable, his service motion. I mean, it's as, it's as fluid as they come. So he's serving great. I think when he's, when, when he's playing his best, he's playing really well. But against Roger Federer in a match where the margins are going to be really slim, and it's, it's all about levelness. That's where Federer gets the edge over Kyrgios, levelness. So I think that it's very possible that Kyrgios wins tiebreaks in this match. But the matches that don't go to tiebreaks, I give the edge to Federer because I think that Kyrgios is more likely to um, give up a loose service game. He's hitting a second serve really hard, but what comes with that? Double faults. So I think it's much more likely that it's Federer who gets the 6-4 in the match. It's Federer who gets the 7-5 in the match. And that's why I think that Federer wins in five sets. Kyrgios can win this match, though. It's going to be a, a, a really good match. But I think Federer in five, and I think that Nick might win maybe uh, at least one or two tiebreak sets. Uh, maybe he can play exceptionally on one of Federer's service games um, and, and grab, a, grab a break like that. But I, I love the way, by the way, Federer, um, so comfortable, and Nick timing the ball. Um, at night at the open. I think Federer um, always plays well in Ash night sessions. He seems to just crush guys. N never has much of, a, much of a problem to me. In the early rounds, Arthur Ash at night, I think Federer destroys guys. Um, so I also like Federer. I like the conditions a little bit more for, for Federer. In the daytime, a little bit hotter for, for Kyrgios's serve, which is more reliant on the miles per hour, less so the craftiness, the placement, uh, you know, the difficulty of, of reading it, even though Nick's serve is a little bit hard to read too. I would like Nick in the day a little bit more. So that's another reason, I think, Federer in five. That's all for me. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty <laughs> presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.